Well, good morning, uh, Southside Baptist Church. How's everyone doing? Good, good. Uh, thank you, Johnny, for another opportunity to preach, and um, Corey and Forrest. Um, sometimes I just wish we could just keep singing, um, especially during the season. So, um, so Thanksgiving is over, and um, I'm sure we started hearing the music, uh, Christmas music on the radio. And uh, Christmas uh, season, I'm a big fan of it. I love how the whole city and all the stores and road are, roads are decorated with lights and glitter. I love how you can go to the mall and really get the sense of the heart and spirit of Christmas uh, with all the lights. You get the really big Christmas tree, you get to see Santa Claus and all the little kids running around, and then you got all the, the sales, you got Black Friday, you got Christmas sales, you got New Year's sales, you got everything. Uh, more traffic, right? The great Hallmark movies, you know, all of the above. And then in our city, we have an entire theme park that turns into Christmas, right? Um, this is how Bush Gardens describes Christmas Town. They say, enjoy beams with twinkling lights with two all-new shows, including the Holiday in the Sky fireworks, uh, and story time with Miss Claus, plus be captivated by world-class ice skaters, melodious tunes, and even your favorite Sesame Street characters. Thrilling rides, festive treats, holiday shopping for the whole family. Christmas shines brightest at Bush Gardens Christmas Town. I hope you caught my sarcasm in all of this. I do like Christmas, uh, but what we have done with Christmas is one of the greatest tragedies in the Western world. The greatest event in all of history has become one of the greatest hypocrisies of the Western world. We have exchanged the glory of the incarnate God for twinkling lights and Christmas trees. Where is the hope in Christmas town? Where do I find the Savior of the world who conquered death? Where can I find Jesus who delivered me from my sins 10 years ago? Our culture has taken the joy and the hope of the Christian faith and left Christ in the grave. America has taken God's gift of prosperity and wealth, and instead of thanking God, giving to the poor, giving to the needy, we have filled our own pockets with greed and more and more things. But this problem is not new. In fact, it has been the persistent problem of God's people. 2,500 years ago, the prophet Jeremiah warned God's people of this same promise. The Israelites took the blessings of God and left God on the curb. So what hope does God give to a people who have forgotten him? What hope does God give to those who constantly blind themselves to the reality of his blessings? What hope is there for the one who time and time again returns to the bottomless dumpster that is the American dream to find purpose in this life? Is there anything, or rather, is there someone who can save us from our wayward and wicked hearts? The Israelites struggled with this problem and had the same exact question. So before we look at our text today, let's take some time to look at how the Israelites struggled to have hope during this time. Today we're going to be spending some time in the 
um, the book of Jeremiah. And at this point in our story, the, the northern kingdom of Israel had been uh, destroyed about 100 years prior to Jeremiah. However, the southern kingdom remained, but only by a thread. God's people had been in constant sin for generations, and judgment is coming. They stopped believing in God's word, chapter 31, 32. God sent them messengers and they rejected them. They would lie in courts for selfish gain, their hearts calloused towards the things of God. They treated their servants badly, did not care for refugees, left widows out to dry, murdered neighbors, sacrificed children to Moloch, took the land God gave them and forgot the giver, And a dozen times God pleaded with them to confess their sins, but they refused. So God caused their most hated enemy to bring them to ruin, the Babylonians. And around 856 BC, Babylon is laying siege to Jerusalem, and it's not looking good. The prophet Jeremiah, God's representative to his people, has been arrested. And arrested why? because he boldly told that prideful king of Judah that he was going to lose this battle, and so he gets arrested. In fact, um, this is how God describes what is about to happen. He said he's going to lay waste to the land so that not even man or beast will be able to live there. It will be desolate, uninhabitable. There will be famine and pestilence. The city will be set on fire and turned to ash. And at the same time, during the siege, God says the most bizarre thing to Jeremiah. He says, Jeremiah, I want you to buy some nice land here in Jerusalem. And in Jeremiah's mind, he's like, what? You want me to buy some nice property while the city is being destroyed? It's being set on fire and everybody's going to go into exile and not even be here? And you want me to buy some property? Maybe not the best real estate agent, But, um, of course, he doesn't say that to God, right? Neither would we. We just go and buy the land, and that's what Jeremiah did. He said, roger that. I'm going to go buy the land. And then a little later, God tells him, that land that you bought will be a sign between me and you and this people that I will bring you back. I will bring you back to Jerusalem. In fact, it gets much better, though, God spends almost two chapters telling Jeremiah how good it's going to be when they come back. And here's kind of a a compilation of the last couple chapters of all the things God is going to do. He says, not only am I going to gather you from the countries, but I will bring you back and you will dwell in safety. Once again, you will be my people and I will be your God. He says, I will give them one heart that they will fear me forever. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never turn from being good to them. I will plant them with all my heart and all my soul. I will restore their fortunes. I will bring health and healing. I will cleanse them from guilt, cleanse them from sin. This will be a city of joy, a city of praise. There will be voices of gladness, voices of the the bride and the bridegroom. They will sing and offer thanks. God describes this place like it's heaven. Israel will go from a wasteland to a farmland. 
They will go from poor to rich, from desolate to flourishing, so prosperous that it will be otherworldly, like nothing that has ever been seen before in history. But how could this be? How can something so hideous become so desirous? It is such a radical, unbelievable idea. It is as if God would take us all to the Sahara Desert and say to us, I'm going to turn this place into a forest bigger than the Amazon rainforest. I'm going to turn the Sahara Desert into a place like Atlantis. That's how just unbelievable this promise is. So how in the world will God bring this crazy reality to fruition? Well, we get our answer in Jeremiah chapter 33. So if you would, I ask that you would turn with your Bibles uh, to Jeremiah chapter 33. We will be in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 14 through 16. Three verses, 14 through 16. And once you found your place, please stand with me for the reading of God's uh, mighty word. Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. Verse 14, God says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Let us pray. Gracious Father, your word stands firm. And in it we put our hope this morning, Lord. Father, come and have your way among your people this morning. Come and stir our hearts to praise that you are worthy, Lord. That this season we would remember the eternal condescension of your Son towards earth that we may go to heaven. Father, come and turn our hearts and our eyes towards you. Let us not forget your benefits and your plentiful redemption, that you lead us beside still waters and green pastures, that you uphold us with your righteous right hand, that you make all the grace abound to us, that we would have sufficiency in all things, that your word does not return void, that it is strong and mighty, mighty to save, and so, Father, I pray that you would push me aside, that you would speak through me, that you would set aside my nerves and anxiety, Lord, that you would help me worship this morning. And I ask this in the everlasting name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So how will God make this unimaginable transition. 
Since the beginning of Jeremiah, there have been 29 chapters of judgment. And how will God in one chapter tip the scales toward hope? That's the question this morning. How will God make this transition and how does he give us hope today? And there are three lessons we learn from our text. And if you're taking notes, it's a good time to start. Um, We're gonna learn three things this morning. First, God gives hope by being faithful to his promise. Second, God gives hope by providing an unimaginable solution. And third, God gives hope by securing the result. So let us um, now turn in our Bibles and let us reread verse one and, and jump in. Verse one says this again, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. Here, God reminds Israel that his promise will come to pass. In other words, the hope of Israel is rooted in the faithfulness of God. And our our first word is important here. It says, uh, behold, or it says, look. It was going to do Israel no good to look at their current circumstances. God's judgment was final on Israel. The judgment was sealed. Therefore, he directs their attention to a future time in a future place. Um, and, And as the people of God, we must understand that the promises of God sometimes come slowly. Days are coming, but sometimes they're long in coming. And since the days are long, and since our timeline is not as fast as God's timeline, God reminds us that our circumstances do not have the last word in the Christian life. God does. Christian hope is stirred within when we cast our eyes towards the things of God, when we cling to what God has spoken and not to the things that are falling away. You see, we have this strong tendency to root our hope in transient and temporary things. Um, if I will, if I, I'd be better off if I would just move out of my parents' house I wouldn't said that maybe more than once. I will be complete once I get married. I will feel secure once I have enough money saved up. I will find joy when I stop working and retire. If this one thing could happen, then I would have fill in the blank. But where is God in that? Where is the faith in these things? Has God not spoken, church? Isaiah says this, the Lord of hosts, he has sworn. God has made an oath and he says, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. Does freedom really purchase happiness? Does marriage promise ultimate fulfillment in this life? Does money procure definitive safety? Does retirement 
give everlasting joy. If we set our sails to the winds of this world, we will always be drifting to one sunken promise to the next. But church, there is a God who is unmovable and unshakable. There is a God whose name is Rock of Ages. And if you put your hope in this rock, if you would just hope in this rock who has never failed, if you will hope in this rock who commands all of history, if you hope in this rock whose word never returns void, if you hope in this rock whose name is Lord God Almighty, whose name is the Lord who is my shepherd, who is called the Lord who is there, whose name is the Lord I will provide, then you will have solid hope in this life. You will stand on sure ground in this life. We cannot see our future with Christ if our heads are wrapped around with the fleeting promises of this present age. Empty promises, they love to cling. They love to to drag the Christian down and keep us from fixing our gaze on the Savior who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so God tells the Israelites in our story, and he tells us, do not behold current circumstances. Do not see as the world sees, but look at me, because unlike the world, I will, I will fulfill my promises. Praise God. Now let's look at the word fulfillment. In verse 14, this word fulfillment in verse 14 is often used in the Old Testament to to describe something that is uh, set up, something that is uh, established, um, to make something appear that was once hidden. And this word is quite fitting because to our appearances, the promises of God often uh, lie dormant. They often uh, seem hidden, and some of us would even say that they're dead. How many of us always feel that God is good and that he is for us? How many of us have ever doubted the power of God in our lives? How many of us feel that the Christian life should be easier? That ministry should be more joyful? that maybe suffering could be a little less severe. Our verse reminds us that although the promises of God sometimes seem hidden, he will be faithful to bring them about. And although it might not be when we want it, although it might not be how we thought it was going to happen, it'll be better than we could have ever imagined. And it will come about at the right time and in the right way if we trust. Before there is a mighty tree, there are mighty roots. And just because we don't see the mighty promises of God does not mean that mighty roots aren't taking hold. 
Therefore, in this verse, God says to the Israelites and he says to us that even in the middle of our circumstances, even when all the signs point away from God, he says, have hope because I am faithful to my word. I am faithful to my promises. I am faithful to my children. In verse 14 then, we see God declaring that he will fulfill his promise. And now in verse 15, we will see the substance of that promise. Our second point for this morning is that God gives hope by providing an unimaginable solution. So let us read uh, verse 15 again. Verse 15 says, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So in verse 14, God says, hope in me because I am faithful. And now in verse 15, he says, hope in me because I have the only solution. This is the most important verse in our text, especially as it concerns Advent. In this verse, God provides a solution to all of our problems. In those days, God says, I will cause a righteous branch to come up for David. And before we apply this text, I want to just explain a few things so we can understand it better. Uh, the word branch, I mean, the ancient Near East, means um, someone that is a royal heir to a throne. Um, and almost every time the word branch um, in the Old Testament refers to a person, it refers to a messianic king that is coming. Um, but why use the word branch? Kind of an odd word for us, we don't use it. But oftentimes in the ancient Near East, um, a kingdom is described as a tree. And so if you recall in Ezekiel, for example, the Assyrian Empire is called a tree that is taller than all the other trees in the field. Daniel, um, in Daniel, not Daniel, where's Daniel, there is. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision, and it's of a large tree with birds of the air coming, and it refers to his kingdom. And even in the kingdom of heaven, in the Gospels, Jesus says um, that the kingdom of heaven is like what type of seed? It'll be a mustard seed that will be planted and grow, and then birds of the air will come and, and nest in it. But God says that this particular branch is going to be a righteous branch. From Adam to the last king in the Bible, Zedekiah, all of the leaders of Israel have failed up until this point. Some were better off than others, but all fell short of the glory of God. And eventually greed, pride, and lust turned their hearts against the Lord. All of them tried to rescue Israel. All of them tried to bring peace. They tried to bring deliverance, security, prosperity. But ultimately, they failed. And it wasn't because they had bad leadership skills, but because they had wayward hearts. Most of the kings worshipped other gods. They set up temples and shrines. They trusted in nations for security. All of them eventually led astray. So God says, I am sending a righteous branch. A righteous branch. Um, you see, Israel would have been looking for a different solution, right? Um, they just wanted a strong king like Saul to bring deliverance and security at whatever it cost. It didn't, it didn't really matter. As long as the king would make them dwell in safety and they would have food on the table, then they were content. But this wasn't going to fix the problem that plagued the world for the last several thousand years. The only way that God was going to deliver his people for good the only way that Israel was going to dwell in safety forever, 
The only way that eternal peace was going to be ushered in was for God to deal with unrighteousness. Unrighteous leaders and unrighteous people. You see, it wasn't going to be enough for God just to bring back the Israelites from the exile because the cycle of sin would have just started all over again. Throughout the Bible, God raised up 12 judges. There was 42 kings. There was dozens of prophets to bring righteousness and justice to God's people. But it never worked. Because just like us, they were held in captivity to their sins. Just another king was not going to do. Therefore, the solution had to be a righteous solution. The earth needed a righteous king. A king wholly dedicated to God and a king wholly dedicated to God's people. The king had to have spotless perfection. He had to have the perfect track record. And because this king was going to be righteous, he couldn't just usurp the throne. Our text says that he had to be a rightful king, a descendant of David. This king in our verse says he will execute righteousness and justice. In other words, this king would set up a kingdom. And this kingdom would be like no other kingdom before. It would, have been, it would be perfect, exhibiting the best of all kings and kingdoms that came before it. It would defend the innocent, punish wrongdoers. He would protect the good, restrain the wicked. He would wage war against sin, judge evildoers, and vindicate the oppressed. In other words, this king would bring heaven down to earth. And the only way for this to happen was for the king to come down from heaven. The unimaginable solution to all of our problems not only comes from God, but comes in the form and the likeness of God. And this church is no other than King Jesus. And the first public words of this king in the Gospel of Matthew is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Church, the righteous branch is here. Israel's true king has arrived, and he is establishing a righteous kingdom. No longer is this world ruled by the kings of this earth, but by the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The rock of ages, church, has not failed. The one who commands all of history has entered into our history. The one who has never failed has overcome. The Lord who was there now becomes the Lord who is here. Lift your eyes and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, church. And if King Jesus governs this world, let us no longer hope in the kingdoms of earth. Let us no longer take comfort in earthly possessions. Let us no longer fear the sting of death. But this Advent season, let us boldly proclaim with our lips that the kingdom of hope has come. And let us proclaim with our actions that the king of the world is here. That he is the only hope that we have in this life and in our death.
Now, if this wasn't enough, God ups the ante in the next verse and gives us just one more reason to hope. In verse 14, we saw God declaring his promise. In verse 15, we saw the substance of that promise. And now in verse 16, we see the result of God's promise. So let us read verse 16. God says this, in those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. And our lesson for this verse is that God gives hope by securing the result. The result of the righteous branch in this righteous kingdom is salvation and security. But the word salvation that our ESV uses is uh, better understood or translated as deliverance because in our context, it means deliverance from Babylon, from their enemies. You see, one of the great uh, persistent problems in the ancient Near East and today is deliverance from captors and security from conquering nations. And we see this in the news all the time these days. Uh, Countries are being threatened to be taken over. And so God tells Israel, Um, The result of this new king, the result of this final deliverance from your captivity is everlasting security, um, everlasting safety from conquering nations. Um, But Israel didn't understand it this way. They understood it as political peace. They thought their number one enemy was other nations. They thought their biggest problem was earthly. But in reality, their number one enemy was their sin. Their biggest problem was their sin before a holy God. And so in the fullest understanding, this kingdom will be a kingdom of salvation. A kingdom that will deliver captive sinners. Um, A kingdom that will promise complete, decisive, and eternal security from sin. And then our verse weaves this final thread in this great tapestry revealing this great work of God. And it says something very interesting. He says that this city where they will dwell in safety and security will be called the Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. Now this is stunning. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. That the righteousness of Jesus is bestowed upon his people. The righteousness of God is transferred to wretched sinners. That the city will so clearly manifest the qualities of justice and the qualities of righteousness that she becomes the very thing that she preaches and proclaims. In our union with Christ... His death becomes our death. His righteousness is now our righteousness. His resurrection is our resurrection. And his father is now our father. Church, we seek a city that is yet to come. And while we wait for God to fulfill his promises to us, while we wait for Christ to return, we must keep our eyes on heaven. On that day when Christ comes, he says a trumpet will sound 
and that he will gather his church. But if our ears are clogged with the promises of this world, if we are not diligent in rehearsing the promises of God and trusting in him, we may not hear that trumpet sound. But if you remain diligent, if you remain steadfast in faith and root your hope in this righteous king and kingdom, and if you seek the city of God which is not made by hands but made by the hands of our Lord and Savior, then when Jesus returns, he will once and for all usher the people of God into this eternal city. And this is the hope of the Christian life, that the gates of this city are open to all who open their hearts to Jesus Christ. The city of God is our city church. The city of God is our dwelling place. It is where we belong. It is the place of our ultimate citizenship. So in this Advent season, let us renew our hope in the faithfulness of God. Let us remember what King Jesus did for us on the cross and let us look forward to his coming again. And I encourage you over the next few weeks um, to read your Bibles a little longer over the next few weeks. Spend more time praying on your knees. Stir up the hope of Christ in your hearts. Renew your hope in God. And above all, don't let Bush Gardens outshine your love for Christ this Christmas season. Let's pray.